Hello, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm your host, Jake Lancaster, along with Henry Sullivan, and today we will be talking with Dr. Paul Levy, the Chief Medical Officer for Baptist Hospital in Oxford. Paul, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, good morning. Yeah, I'm Paul Levy. I'm the Chief Medical Officer and Cardiothoracic Surgeon here in Oxford, and I'm happy to be with you all this morning. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up in Oxford, and if they've made you an Ole Miss fan yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon by training and just transitioned to a chief medical officer. Spent seven years in Jonesboro with the Baptist system. And prior to that, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico as a cardiothoracic and vascular surgeon. And guess what? I just parachuted in here April 1st during the COVID pandemic. And it's been it's been, a, it's been an interesting ride. And my daughter is an Ole Miss student. And uh, yes, I have now become an Ole Miss fan. Oh, welcome to the club. Henry, can you tell the audience what you want to accomplish with this episode? Thanks, Jake. And Paul, welcome to this podcast series. Paul, indeed, you were dropped into the Baptist North Mississippi on April 1, both as your first experience as a chief medical officer in a hospital that in the, historically has never had a chief medical officer. And oh, by the way, we threw you in the middle of a pandemic and operationalizing the response to a pandemic is complicated and and yet you were given the job and oh and, and indeed start off as a new cmo there in oxford so i would like to ask you how did you start your process for thinking about uh shutting down elective and semi-elective surgery at oxford that was probably easier to do than restarting it but did you have any, any thoughts in mind as you started to shut that down because i think that was charge number one is elective and semi-elective by mandate had to stop well needless to say COVID has been a big disruptor and you know it made it a little bit easier that the that the health department said you know you must do x y and z um i got better buy-in from the from the physicians and surgeons clearly as you all know, the cadence of change has been just nothing like we've ever seen before. There's been more change in the last three months than there has been in probably 20 years of healthcare, my practice anyway. Closing down the OR was very, very difficult. There were a lot of naysayers, and we at times felt like we were all dressed with no place to go. And, and then finally, we started seeing COVID hit the front doors. And then folks were taking it very seriously. And the change with our surgery type of cases really changed dramatically. We were doing urgent and emergent cases only. Any other cases that were potential of life limiting, uh, we were doing those cases also. The way we were doing these cases was completely different than how we had become accustomed. We had folks in and out of the OR taking care of patients that may or may not have been there before. And we had uh, different ways of putting patients to sleep. We had testing requirements that sometimes were met. And if they couldn't be met, then we had to use full precautions, uh, PPE. And then to try to do all this, these high-risk surgeries, because they were emergent urgent, without the presence of family. That was a huge change for us. So, yeah, th there were a lot of challenges and we're still dealing with them, but I think Folks are have become a little bit more nimble, you know, in this world of healthcare that we, you know, we're, we're guided by guidelines and best practices. Well, here we're sort of making it up as we go based upon certain guideposts, and it's been very interesting. Yeah, and so you mentioned that the emergent cases still went to the operating room. 
How did you determine which ones met that criteria? Well, uh, basically, as a as a surgeon, we have certain guidelines that are put out by the American College of Surgeons. But you know, when a when a surgeon wants to do a case, you, you kind of have to really kind of give it a, a look see. And basically, I spoke with the surgeons personally, and sometimes we even have to look at cases. But basically, it was on the honor system. And then the testing prior to the surgeries, can you just walk us through what that looked like? Uh, whether you use the, the send out or the rapid test and, and how that was going? Well, at first, you know, we were using the uh, send out the PCR COVID test and we had the 48 hour window, uh, which uh, we had to be within 48 hours, which was the, the mandate. Uh, and that was stretched out to 72 hours based upon the data and based upon the, the uh, turnaround time and constraints at the, at the lab because so many folks were getting tested. But for the emergent, urgent cases, uh, we would uh, normally use a rapid Cepheid test, which is the one-hour test. Unfortunately, the supply chain has not been very reliable, uh, and there is a national shortage. So that's become another barrier and constraint. Uh, we're still working through that, but I will tell you, buy-in from the uh, stakeholders, uh, the surgeons has, and the anesthesiologist has been um, exceptional at this time. I will tell you, um, getting patients ready for surgery now that we're back doing electives takes an incredible amount of manpower. The focus now is really on getting them ready for surgery, and it's uh, it's kind of a change. To expand on that a little bit more, Paul, because this pandemic has been terribly disruptive, but yet as we've reopened elective, semi-elective cases, which have been sitting out there, frankly, for, for three, four months needing to be done, can you elaborate a little bit more on that process? Because it is, it is more detailed. I understand. Yes, the um, you know when a patient sees somebody in the when, when a doctor sees a patient in the office, you know they've got block time, and that block time fits into maybe the next day, maybe the following day. Well, you've got to figure out what the turnaround time is for the COVID testing. You have to determine is this an emergent, urgent case, or is this an elective case? Most of the time in the office, it's an elective, but there are some add-ons that need to come over immediately. Uh, and if and if it's a general anesthesia, we'd like to know if they're COVID positive or negative. And so we'd like to, to use a rapid test. However, if it's a regional block, you know, we've talked about saving our Cepheid test for the emergent urgent cases and or the STEMIs in the cath lab. So we, you know, I'm involved more with, with that kind of decision than um, uh, I'd really like to be. Um, I think that uh, the, the surgeons now are able to take it on themselves and make the decision, uh, make the, make the right decision. And so you really want to, we were trying to get this flow in, into place that I can have the, the folks at point of care really making the right decision. And so that's kind of where I think we have to go, in my opinion, uh, with this, because the best stewards of hospital resources are the folks that are using them. Uh, same way with, you know, blood and uh, blood products. You know, we need to know what we what we have every day because there is a blood shortage and um, so this is another uh, resource that's become limited it's not just the the uh, covid test so uh, there's a ripple effect throughout surgery and in the hospital let's go back to the testing just real quickly so prior to surgery you're testing all these folks and you're hoping that the test will come back negative but in a few cases it is coming back positive, I would assume. I don't think Oxford has had as many asymptomatic positives as other places, but you have had some. 
How does that change the way you proceed with the surgery or you, do you delay it or do you look at the case and, and decide or whether or not the patient's symptomatic? How do you decide what to do if that test comes back positive? Well, I think we've had three now that are uh, that have come back positive. And I will tell you that if it's not uh, emergent or urgent, it gets delayed. Uh, I think everybody is on the same page with that. We've had we've had one pregnant, two pregnant uh, patients that uh, have been COVID positive, uh, and they obviously delivered. But you can't do that. But <laughs> can't delay that. Uh, and and fortunately, they have done very well. But I will tell you, I think. Knowing what could possibly happen with a patient that does not need to have their surgery, I think most surgeons don't have any problem with delaying. And that certainly makes sense. Being in Oxford, have you all noticed any demographic trends that, you know, maybe a little bit different over the last several months? Well, you know, the emergency room, it's uh, funny you say that, the emergency room volume has markedly decreased, and I don't know where the kids are well, the kids aren't here, but most folks have been going to urgent care or seeking care online, I, I guess, because they have not been coming to the emergency room. Our emergency room volume has come back to about 70% of pre-COVID. And to be honest with you, um, I don't know if it's ever going to come back to 100% because patients have found another way of getting their health care. And, you know, we admit about 60 to 70% of patients out of the ED into the hospital. And I, I think you know, that's certainly not going to change with respect to those folks coming in, but it's really that other 30, 40% that are seeking care elsewhere. With respect to the, the college kids, the only college kids that are in town are the ones that are getting infected at the bars. Uh, and uh, I get calls all the time by my daughter's friends saying, you know, I, I can't breathe or I'm having fevers and chills and they want to know what to do. And so uh, we've adopted three kids now that, that have fortunately made it through okay. And that was very interesting about, you know, what you said about the emergency room and, and patients, how it, you don't expect it to go back to 100%. Have you seen the same impact on surgery or do you find those patients more willing to proceed with elective cases? No, our, our surgery volume, we're, we're above 100% of pre-COVID right now. Uh, we have rebounded. Uh, we've been 80, 90%. Now we're, last week we were over 100% of pre-COVID and um, the patients want to come back. And we have really marketed um, that we have a safe environment for patients. This is safer than anywhere in the, uh, in the county, the, the hospital. Uh, we've proven it. Baptist has really done a good job in, in uh, keeping us safe. We've tested 916 of our employees and we've had no uh, positive patients uh, with COVID. That's a testament to the uh, mitigation efforts that we're using in the hospital with PPE, social distancing. And uh, that's been um, uh, really something I think it's very important for the patients to, to understand. And I think that's why they're coming back. That's a really good point. And I know early on, once we resumed elective surgeries, we we'd had that consent process out there for the patients. And, and to that point, the, the data show that you're much less likely to get COVID-19 from the healthcare setting than you are from the general community. Henry, do you just want to talk through that process and how it's evolved over time? So let's talk about the consent for surgery as we started to reopen the operating room, certainly the urgent emerging cases, Paul, I think you covered that patient movement really well. What were some of the issues surrounding the reopening of semi-elective and elective cases for you? Did you, we had a, an operative permit form that was an attestation statement 
by the patient and the surgeon was that received? Initially, it was uh, there was a lot of resistance because I think that the surgeons were afraid to scare the patients, um, and I don't really think that the gravity of the situation really uh, had permeated yet to the the surgeons. And I think that once the seriousness of the situation of operating on somebody during this COVID pandemic kind of became apparent, I think there was more buy-in. I also think that it helped almost as a checklist to uh, for the surgeon to have a discussion, a frank discussion with the patient and the possible ramifications of having a complication, a COVID-related complication uh, during this pandemic. So that initially was seen as a barrier. As time went on, I think it became something that was uh, a benefit. Uh, and then, and then I think there was just then, then there was buy-in. So all in all, I think I agreed with it from the get-go. I just think that you know the surgeons again, this is change, and and everybody's always resistant to change, especially surgeons. We you know we we are trained a certain way, and when this was thrust upon us. Uh, that was our immediate uh, knee-jerk reaction. As you see patients returning to surgery, have you experienced any any reluctance, or are they are they coming without any concerns, or what's been your general take on the, on the public as they return to the operating room? So I do. I see office patients also for my cardiothoracic practice, and you know I don't know what the other folks are seeing, but I can tell you I've had some patients that have been very reluctant to come back into the hospital and I present the data to them. You know, what we've done here, our testing, that, uh, you know, no, none of our, our, our folks are positive, that work here uh, and our efforts, uh, the Herculean efforts that we're making around the system. And I think that helps with some of their fears. But again, the folks are so afraid that they're gonna get COVID. So yeah, I think that it's, it's a balance between trying to get their, their care that they really want, their knee done, their, their rib fracture fixed, their lung cancer taken care of, those sort of things versus the risk of having a problem with COVID. And I think most folks want to get, uh, get the, care, the care that they think that they need. And I think they're, they're starting to crawl out of their, um, their homes. I, I will tell you, my big concern though, guys, is the, you know, the issue with Patients that are not seeking care that have chronic issues, chronic care issues, uh, chronic disease, because you know these these are so important to keep patients, the patients that have the chronic diseases, in their homes, out of nursing homes, so that they can take care of their, themselves. And I think that a lot of patients have not been going to the doctor, and I think that's going to be a big. Uh, we're going to see some ramifications from that. It's almost like a natural history study. You're anticipating at some later point and these folks who have not been seeking ongoing care for their conditions, the deterioration of their status, is that what you're expecting to see or have you seen that already? Yes, I think we're starting to see that. I think we're going to see a, a, a blip, a surge of chronically ill patients. Uh, you know, we're also, some of the pediatricians are talking about that we might see an outbreak of measles because children aren't going for their immunizations. And so that's a real concern. So we may, we may see uh, some other things crop up that we weren't, uh, we weren't expecting. I agree. And I, I think our messaging is going to be really important on this. And like you said earlier, we've, we've done a good job of already messaging that the hospital is, is safer than the surrounding community. Our rates of employees with infections is 
infinitesimally lower than what it is in the community. So I, I do think that's a testament just to what we do in healthcare and, and how we keep things clean and how we have the proper PPE and the protocols in place, whereas most other places around in the community don't have those interventions. And the healthcare workers are a little bit more savvy than the general public about what to do and what to avoid. Oh, let me take you back a step. Let's go back to the urgent emergent case or someone that has a rapid deterioration in their status. How do you, how do you and the, the team there at North Mississippi, how do you all handle a code and someone who is either presumptive positive or known positive? We've all taken special steps to intervene uh, emergently. Are you talking about taking to the operating room or? Taking to the operating room or taking to cath lab or the rapid movement of someone through the hospital? If we don't have time to perform a rapid test, uh, we will perform a test, but we just move, we, uh, move right along. Uh, we presume that they're positive. We're using appropriate PPE. If they need to be intubated, they're going to be intubated in a, you know, in an appropriate negative pressure room and uh, kind of an ante room. And if we can't do that, then we have limited folks in the operating room when that happens and everybody's in full PPE, and then uh, we proceed uh, with the surgery. And uh, same way in the cath lab. Now, again, it's very cumbersome, and I think that's why the uh, testing turnaround time is very important, and the supply of the rapid test is important. And I think that's, you know, creating what I call uh, PPE fatigue. I think um, folks are really getting tired of being in their masks and in their you know, whatever, whatever the status of the patient is. And so we really need to be careful with that. You can't be uh, cavalier, but, uh, you know, I, I will tell you that we are taking all precautions uh, for emergent and urgent uh, cases. So Paul, not like cases tend to be rapidly rising in, in the South, Mississippi, Tennessee and surrounding areas. Are there any specific initiatives that are going on in Oxford to, to address COVID? Well, in the population, uh, you're not in the community where to go into a store or to a restaurant, you need a mask on. However, obviously, when you're eating, the mask is off. Uh, they have uh, social distancing as a, uh, as a mandate. However, when you're dealing with youngsters that feel like they're bulletproof, you know, you can walk anywhere and you can see folks don't have masks on. They're not social distancing. And uh, because of that, we're seeing a, an uptick in the amount of uh, COVID cases that we have here in uh, North Mississippi. And because of that, we're also seeing a, an uptick of what we're seeing in the hospital. Most youngsters, as, as we know, um, uh, may have symptoms for a few days and then they tend to get better. But the problem is when we take it home to grandma or grandpa uh, or mom or dad that may have some significant comorbidities, heart disease, cerebral vascular disease, kidney disease, lung disease, et cetera. And those are the folks that are, are going to reap the, um, uh, the worst of, of the COVID infection. And because we know that the mortality is, uh, is, is pretty high in those folks. So I think that I'd like to see a little bit more discipline from the youngsters in the community. Do I think I'm going to see that? No, I don't. So I think we just have to be prepared and poised for this resurgence, if you will, or second wave or increase, uh, transient increase, and just be cognizant of all of our resources in the hospital. Uh, every day I put out to the, to the medical staff what the new numbers are, what our resources are in the way of blood, 
blood, blood, blood products, how many uh, rapid tests we have, what our turnaround time is, how many ventilators, uh, ICU beds we have, how many vents we're, we, we have. And I think that being able to communicate that to the medical staff has really reduced a lot of trepidation. We have, you know, we have the screens that, that have the front door and the back door. We have with, with our numbers, uh, our current numbers. So when people come to work, they know what to expect. And again, you know, reality is reality. And I think that just that folks are in, are educated and informed about it. Uh, I think that's what's imp what's important uh, and we'll keep, uh, We'll keep them safe and also keep the ranks down. I agree. You know, that's definitely the first thing I check every morning is what are the numbers in the system? And it definitely helps to, to have that knowledge, whether even if it's going up, it's good just to, to know where you stand. Well, Henry, do you have any closing comments for the audience? I just want to thank Paul for his time today and also the, the remarkable work that, that he has helped lead there at North Mississippi coming in quickly in the midst of a pandemic and uh, helping to settle the waters there north mississippi very quickly paul so um, both jake and i've been very impressed with what you and all the lead and the leadership team there at north mississippi as well as the medical staff the nursing staff have been able to do uh, to contain uh, first off the concerns that the, the medical staff and others have about the pandemic and its impact on the professional team, but also to the public there in, in Oxford. So congratulations to you and leadership team and what you all have done there in Oxford. Well, again, this is a, it's a team sport. We have a great administrative team here and nursing staff and, and medical staff, and you know, we're all in it to help the community. Well, thank you, Paul. And thank you to the audience. Thank you for listening to Right Care at Baptist. We will be back next week. Please remember to check the show notes for the link to the CME so you can get credit for this episode. Thank you.